What's up, bitches? Uh, weird, weird to say that, but welcome to Fan Zone, uh, the number one contenders match. Uh, so I'm told I am not Tim Bercala. I am, I am your host, Brooklyn Vale. Uh, and today is the, an exciting match: uh, Nick Tuig versus Brian Michaels. Uh, people who have been new to the to the to the debate team since I have uh, since I have been active in it, but uh, it's good to see that they are getting up to another contenders match. Winner takes on Tim for the championship. Uh, first, we're going to introduce our judges, starting off with a person that I have known for quite a while, quite a while Mr. Cody Newberry. Cody, how are you feeling about Nick versus Brian? So it's funny. Like, Brian was the one on the post who was like, well, oh, now we're mixing. Uh, I don't think I'll do this. And now he's at a number one contenders match, which is exactly his entire career. He downplays himself, and then he shows how good he actually is. He has so much movie knowledge, so I think mixing it up. Plus, he has fandom knowledge that he just doesn't want to claim. Or so that's interesting. Tuig is also the future Warzone champion, so he's got a lot of knowledge. But he's also the fandom fights champion right now, so he's got both areas covered. So this should be actually a really good match. I'm glad Tim's not here because it would be weird for him to decide who plays him. So we'll do that for him, and then good luck to those bastards that have to judge that match. Some might call that collusion. Um, but let's go to the uh, to our other judge, uh, and that is Caleb Bowman. Uh, I see he is eating either popcorn or kettle chips. Caleb, do you judge better when or with when you're eating when you're not eating? The frick is a kettle chip. You've never heard of a kettle chip? And well, that's a little that's a little weird. But oh, is that like just chip puffs with like the baked? Well, let's just. Anyways, okay, I know what a kettle. French fries wasn't even an option. You do have kettle chips, you idiot. Brian, and do you judge better when you're eating? When These you're are fries. Okay. Get so let's get. 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 Let's no, if anything, it makes me look at movies that don't have Harry Potter or um, Darth Vader in them. So that, that's got to help a little bit, I would imagine. Uh, also, 12 Angry Men, just the greatest movie of all time. Am I right? Nick wins. We can go home. Uh, Nick Nick uh, entertaining the judges. Oh, uh, we'll see how that fares off. Uh, and you see his opponent, Brian. Brian, you have not acquired a trivia night over the last uh, the last time since recording matches. Uh, but how do you feel? Do, does not having a show uh, improve your performance? Um, I, I feel that it wouldn't matter at this point because Caleb's already made his decision. So I, I'm just going home. I mean, I am home, I am home but I'm going offline. So, it is what it is. I feel it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how it's going to work for anybody who hasn't watched before? These guys had to draft four prep questions to a piece. Uh, they gave questions. They gave, they gave answers. Uh, they have one minute for opening and closing, and five minutes of free form. Uh, as I said, guys, in the free form, no touching of the hair or face, and no filibustering. Uh, we'll start off with question number one. Uh, drafted in the category of Disney Pirates. And their question is: uh, What is the best scene in a pirates movie? Uh, and we're going to be starting off with Brian on this one. You have one minute. Uh, time begins whenever you start talking. All right. A little peek behind the curtain here. In my previous fan zone match, there is a question that was never got. we never got to. It wasn't used. Uh, supposed to be what was the best sword fight in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And my answer was the Dead Man's Chest three-way fight. And it still would be. That's an amazing, fun sword fight. But the best overall scene in the series... Not quite. Uh, the best scene in the series is actually uh, one of the longest as well. Clocking in almost 20 minutes long, it's the Maelstrom sequence at the end of At World's End. The perfect culmination of the entire trilogy formed by the first three films in the series. It's an action extravaganza, epic in scope, fitting as the climax of the saga while at the same time containing smaller personal moments and tying up multiple threads and storylines. No scene in the franchise so perfectly encapsulates Everything Pirates is about better than the Maelstrom scene. It's creative, action-packed, exciting, uh, a generous helping of comedy mixed in. There's romance, moral dilemmas, uh, sacrifice, and most of all, it's fun, which is what Pirates of the Caribbean is all about. Ending with one second to spare, uh, using the efficient uh, time of that opening, uh, we'll go now to Nick's opening. Uh, Nick, what do you feel is the best scene in a Pirates movie? One minute, time begins when the when 
Um, little peek behind the curtain. I didn't know that little peek behind the curtain, so I'm glad I picked uh, Brian's favorite sword fight. Um, unfortunately, he picked the entire third act, uh, which is almost universally disliked by, by most people. Um, a lot of things he said in terms of fun, in terms of character moments, in terms of um, swashbuckling action is actually the three-way uh, sword fight on Isla uh, Cruces in, um, in Dead Man's Chest. And the reason is, is because we get to follow three characters who's, who we've been following all along. The whole story of pirates, when you really go back and look at it, and I love pirates. Like, I'm not, I'm not like coho level pirates, but like, I defend the pirates movies. I really like them. Um, from the beginning, it's, it's Jack, it's Norrington, it's Will Turner. It's them having to be allies at times, them being enemies at another. And this moment in Dead Man's Chest is what pirates is all about. We get to see these three as characters when their sort of forced allyship is finally, it finally comes to a head. It's what we've been waiting for the whole movie, and it's fun. And it's good to watch, and I'll get into it. All right. We'll go into the free form. Gentlemen, you guys know how it works. Five minutes, no filibustering. Nice back and forth. Uh, let's get it on. You know, you say it's whatever he's been waiting for till the end of the movie, but what my my scene is what everyone's waiting for at the end of the entire trilogy. It it, it kind of wraps up everything. It's so many storylines. It's got everything going on. It's got uh, swashbuckling sword fights with Johnny, uh, with Jack and Davy Jones on the mass of the ship. It's got ship versus ship cannon battles. Um, all the characters' personalities show through in their dialogue and action. Barbosa chewing up the scenery, Jack doing his usual thing. Even the minor characters like Pintel and Rigetti get to show off. And and there's so many storylines and so many different things that all come together. This one scene gives you everything the Pirates is all about. Okay, the only thing Pintel and Rigetti do is, is hide. And then they fire a monkey out of a cannon. Uh, the mo This moment in At World's End, look, I know it's best scene, but I think the rest of the movie sort of kind of has to factor into what we're looking at when we look at the scene. The fact is there's two armies of ships that we want to be fighting each other that are sitting there doing nothing. We just sat through an hour long brethren court meeting that makes no sense. And the fact that they're fighting in a maelstrom now, there's a lot of nitpicking that I'll get into later as to why it doesn't totally make sense, but there's a lot more filler in there that actually makes this very long third act that no one's really waiting for anymore because we're kind of bored at this point. Um, the three-way sword battle, like I said, Dead Man's Chest is a really good movie. Jack, Jack, uh, Jack Norrington and Will Turner are three of the most interesting characters. And like I said, they've been forced to be allies up until this point in the movie. And it's what everyone's been looking at, just knowing that this sort of tumultuous relationship is going to end. And when uh, they finally find the chest, you know, the, the MacGuffin of the whole thing, uh, the three, this is what, yeah, this is what, um, this is what we've been waiting for, is watching their interests collide. I, I think that, that the fact that they're all they're all fighting it's it's a it's a cool fight. I've always thought it was a cool sword fight. But the problem is that it doesn't do much for the story. It's just a cool sword fight shoved in the middle of the movie. I mean, the the, the motivations get fuzzy. You don't know who's after what for what reason. Some want the key, some want the chest, some want the heart, some want revenge, uh, some want to escape. And even when their goals align, they're still battling each other, which makes no sense. And as as for uh, World's End, I mean, you talk about so much. There's too much filler, but then you want the army versus army of ships battling each other on top of that. And for all we know, they were battling in the background, but they didn't need to show all of that stuff. No, they weren't, because because when it ends, they're all just they're still sitting there. Rigetti um, lays out all those things that you just said were confusing. He literally sits there and goes, you know, Jack wants it to save his own skin. Um, Norrington wants some sort of redemption, and Will wants to save his father. The fact is, there's little character moments within the sword fight where where um, Will and Norrington team up on Jack and then Jack does what he does best and outsmarts Norrington and gets him to fight Will again. The fact is there's so many cool character moments that come out and you say it has nothing to do with it. We literally find out who gets Davy Jones's heart and it leads into the third movie. Which Norrington leads into the third movie, which is what's important, which just means the third, the, the third movie is where everything comes together. You finally get the payoff of everything and all these other movies coming together. I mean, it just in the middle of this giant battle, in this maelstrom, in all this rain, you have uh, Will's father being saved. You have the death of Davy Jones. You have the marriage of Will and Elizabeth. You have the death and saving curse of, of Will Turner. In addition to just all the cool action stuff, this has so much story that is told very well in the middle of this battle. It, it's 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 not you know stopping to do an action scene. It's not you know, it's not taking away from the character moments. It's all mixed so well and everything goes together. I mean, I would disagree because you have those two clowns from the first movie that had one funny moment, and then they played out way too long, and they're like, "Oh, we're guarding the the chest now." But oh, now we're talking to each other, and Jack takes it, and then they swing. Those two like totally take me out. I'll give you the wedding. The wedding's kind of cool, but you picked a scene that's so long and has so much in it. Why is um, Bootstrap against Will? Like that's never really totally explained. 
Um, why is this is where it's Jack, against Will because of the curse of the ship? It's got him working for Davy Jones, some sort of the ship. I guess it's not really totally explained. And and my issue is this is the moment this maelstrom battle is where Jack Sparrow becomes a cartoon. Because in the three-way sword battle, the swashbuckling stuff on the spinning wheel, that sort of action is all believable up to this point because that's what But he's not cartoonish in that when he's sticking halfway through it and going around with the wheel? No, because 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 it's it's like the peak believability. But him, you know, making a parachute, swinging on, on that, that's where he becomes a cartoon to where the action is sort of unbelievable at that point. But I, I don't think there's too much going on in the scene like you said there was. Because, I mean, to say there's too much going on here is like saying uh, Return of the Jedi, the end of Return of the Jedi, this big, long half-hour scene had too much going on because there's the battle in space on Death Star, the battle on Endor, and Luke fighting Darth Vader on uh, in the, with the lightsabers. But right. like that film, this was like the, the ending that the whole thing built up to. It had to be long. The length is not a bad thing. The length is a good thing because you get to tie up every single storyline as well as be having so much cool action, so much comedy. You got some romance in there. You got everything you want in this climax. Right. But the, the Star Wars thing is a bad comparison because that's much grander in scale. We're on two tiny ships. And here's the nitpick. I, I hate this about the Pirates movies. We literally watched Barbosa kill like 20 guys over a matter of a minute. How on earth is there still people to fight for a half hour? There's not. There's a very limited amount of people, and I hate that these battles that go on forever when people are dying left and right. All right, um, that was a good free form. Uh, we'll now go into the closing arguments. We're gonna start off with Nick on this one. You have one minute to uh, wrap everything up. The Maelstrom battle is is a big CGI mess. It's it's full of things we don't care about. It's missing things like we just met the brother in court, and now they're gonna they're gonna sit to the side. Where's Gibbs during the whole thing? You don't see him once. Like, did he die? People are dying left and right, and yet there still seems to be coming more. When you really think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's cool moments like the wedding, but you pick such a long thing that there's so much filler in there. There's so much fluff. There's characters that are annoying. There's characters that aren't doing anything. There's ultimately not a whole lot of consequences other than Davy Jones dying, but. There's really nothing else. Jack Sparrow becomes a cartoon. The three-way sword battle is what Pirates is all about. It's the best action scene. It's the best sword battle. And it's the best because we get to explore the characters who we've come to know and love when they're finally faced with the choice with, okay, all these people who I've been in a tumultuous sort of allyship relationship with, this is the head where it comes because all three of, all three of our goals are now clashing with each other. And this is the explosion of it. It's cool there's um, Pintel and Rigetti actually provide comedy in this scene, unlike the Maelstrom battle, and it's cool we just get to see them fight. All right. Now we go to Brian uh, for his closing arguments uh, to finish the question. All right, first fact-checking, Gibbs is all over those scenes. I just watched it this morning again, and Pintel and Rigetti have plenty of comedy scenes. But that aside, uh, it's no secret that I love the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, especially the three that make up the core trilogy. Um, you'd be hard pressed to find any scene in these movies that I don't like to some extent. And that does include the entertaining sword fight from Dead Man's Chest. But the Maelstrom took what they did there and improved upon it in every aspect. The action, the fun, the characters. It was so much more than just a sword fight. Um, I know many people have mixed feelings about the about the later films in the trilogy. Um, a lot of people only like the first one. A lot of people think this one's bloated. But looking at this specific scene by itself in that sequence... It's the most impressive scene on a technical level, on a creative level, in terms of progressing, and in this case, wrapping up the stories. And uh, when you look at it as a piece of the massive franchise that is Pirates of the Caribbean, no other scene exemplifies the series as a whole so well. That just makes it all the more worthy of the title of best scene. That's all the time I need. All right. All right. Uh, I think uh, a little bit early once again, uh, we'll bring in Nick and I'll also bring in uh, Bert and Ernie. Um, we'll give them time uh, to write their answers on our whiteboard. Uh, and I will go. I will go first. I already have mine. Okay. Cool. All right. So, yeah. So I'm gonna go first. Uh, just go back and forth. Um, I think it was just more so uh, that one person tried to land a bunch of offense. I I I appraised them, but it just didn't land. I think the defense was really well done by Brian. Uh, and that's why I'm giving him my point. Just uh, handle handle a lot of things. And I think Nick even knew halfway through the free form uh, that he wasn't hitting anything. But, uh, but uh, Bowman, Cody, uh, how do you guys fare? Yeah, uh, I'm also voting for Brian. Or maybe I should have gone to Cody. Sorry. Uh, I'm also voting for Brian. Uh, I think that it was actually a really close fight, in my opinion. Uh, there were... There was a lot of back and forth. I, I do think Brian had a really good defense at the end of the day, so uh, that that's kind of where my allegiance is like. 
Yeah, Nick may like uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I'm pretty sure that Brian loves the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, so uh, you could see the passion. Uh, and that opening and closing were, as to say, maybe scripted prior, but very well delivered, so I will give the point to Brian. All right, so Brian, I, I have notes. They are scripted, but I have notes. That, that's fair. It, it was it was beautiful. I, I, I about cast my ballad for you. It's great. All right, so Brian does take the first point as I got, get rid of Statler of Waldorf here. Um, we now go to your second question, uh, which is going to be in biopics. Uh, what musician slash band that hasn't gotten a biopic should get one? Uh, I am excited. I'm tingling with anticipation for this question. Uh, we are starting off with uh, Nick and this one. Uh, one minute, uh, four years whenever you start talking. Uh, I think when I say this answer, everyone will be shocked that there really hasn't been a true biopic uh, of of him yet. Uh, there's been, from what I understand, there's been movies that sort of surround the same time period that maybe like feature him. But Kurt Cobain, uh, lead singer of Nirvana, needs his own his own biopic, um, and it, he needs his own biopic that explores his whole life, which is only 27 years long. But man, there's a lot in there to explore. So it, it's going to be hard to sort of sound excited about a movie that will be so dour, but think of movies like Manchester by the Sea or A Star is Born where we can explore the idea of depression and, and drug use in this, this man who had so much going on in his life and was so so complex. Um, you know, think of the lessons we can learn about how art um, is really born out of, out of tragedy, uh, out, out of sadness. He had a lot of close calls in his early life that I think would be interesting uh, to explore. Uh, he had a rough childhood growing up. Uh, and ultimately, ultimately, I think his life is just much more interesting and much more lesson teaching than my bonus trip. Time. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. We'll move over to Brian for his open argument. Uh, what musician slash band that hasn't gotten a biopic should get one? One minute, whatever you say. Prince, by a mile. Um, Prince was a musical genius. He's a immensely talented guy and one of the most influential uh, musicians, not only of his generation, but of all time. Um, he was as enigmatic as he was charismatic. I mean, this is a guy who you can never really figure out and he lived in mystery. Um, so between covering the accomplishments of his career and his, in his public life and uncovering the mystery of his private life, uh, perf Prince is perfect material for a biopic. Uh, he was a runaway uh, from a broken home who suffered epileptic seizures as a kid. And he made up for that by becoming as, fla as flashy and noisy as he could. Uh, he's obsessed with music. He lived, breathed and ate music. Um, he composed, produced, uh, recorded everything, his own songs, often playing all the instruments himself. He had every room in his house wired to record sound so he could do it whenever he wanted to. I mean, this guy breathed music. Um, he said it was average a song a day, which which there's still hundreds of, of unreleased songs uh, stored away in a vault somewhere. Um, his whole career had controversy. I mean, Purple Rain is the one that Tipper Horse had started her parents' anti-music crusade. And all this is just scratching the surface. There's plenty more to get into. All right. Perfect. Uh, I'll bring back in Nick and go to the free form. Don't need to say anything. Uh, let's get it on. <laughs> let's get it on. Um, I would like to start by saying I would sit and watch uh, Prince perform Purple Rain in the rain uh, during the Super Bowl over and over again hundreds of times. That does not, him being the possibly the better musician does not mean that the biopic will be better. All, all you said about Prince's life was that he loved music. He was dedicated to music. I love music. I'm dedicated to music too. That doesn't make for an interesting movie to watch. Well, like um, I said, I just scratched the surface on this. I mean, Prince's life, a lot of it's a mystery people don't know about. I mean, he had he had a kid born in 1996 who died uh, six days later of Pfeiffer syndrome, and they pretended he was still alive for a month after that, even during an Oprah interview, because they they were didn't want to deal with that publicly, and, and uh, eventually and it resulted in the end of his marriage. He had fights, legal fights, with his label, where he scrawled "slave" on his face and even changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol just to try and distance himself from the catalog. Um, like I said, there's the whole uh, anti-music thing that Tipper Gore started. He basically was was one of the reasons they started with parental advisory lyrics. I mean, everything about his life is is interesting. This, this man obsessed with music as well as every all sort of his private life. Whereas Kurt Cobain, I mean, you said that you know you can deal with depression, you can deal with drugs. Been there, done that. I've seen a thousand movies and biopics about people who are dealing with depression and drugs, especially musicians. And I don't see anything new and interesting to tell about him. I mean, I've seen a, a Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Band, like that. That all sort of sounds like the Prince biopic you're pitching. And here's the thing: mystery sounds cool on on its on its surface. Someone with a mysterious life 
could just be, imagine you're looking at a present. You're like, wow, that's a dope present. Look at how cool it's wrapped. And then you unwrap it and there's nothing inside of it. That's the risk we're taking with a Prince Five. Figure. You're saying if, if, but we know there's more in there. But mystery may be the wrong word. I guess I just meant it's not well known, but it's not a mystery. But we know if you look into it, if you read into it, you find out so there is so much more substance there. Whereas Kurt Cobain, you still haven't told me anything beyond he was depressed and did drugs. Well, yeah. Well, he he lived a, a, a tough life in, uh, being younger, like Prince did. His parents divorced only. He had a lot harder of a time. Uh, Prince, I think, ran away and lived with his neighbors or something like that and then wound up growing up. Okay, all you've told me is that Prince loves, lives, breathes music. That's not fun to watch. You, you, you've mentioned like the kid thing. That kind of sounds interesting for maybe like a 10-minute a, a scene, but I, I'm, I just don't see a whole lot in Prince's life that makes for an interesting biopic. He, he's a great musician. Uh, one of the most influ influential musicians of all time, but I don't get how that translates to an interesting biopic. At least with Kurt Cobain, you have you have themes that we've seen in movies before. It's, it's true. Like I said, Manchester by the Sea. Like I said, A Star is Born. Those are themes we've seen before, but it's based on a real-life person this time in a, in a real-life event. When he was 17, he laid down on train tracks and tried to kill himself, and the train wound up taking a different track. Like, Just imagine how haunting that would look on screen. Okay, you got me for one scene. Uh, you still have basically told me almost nothing about him because the problem is, I mean, he's a great musician. I love his music. Obviously, they've had a, a major impact uh, with Nirvana. But, I mean, you haven't really told me anything that's interesting about his life that could sustain a whole movie besides telling me, yes, these scenes we've already seen in Manchester by the Sea and Star is Born and all these other things. The only thing that's interesting about Kurt Cobain really is the mystery around his death. And you can't really explore that because if you even imply in the slightest chance that it was anything but a suicide, you're not getting the rights to use his music in that movie right. because according to Love holds most of the rights to that. You don't and even need to show it. What's that? You don't even need to show it. There, there's a documentary about him right now, and the documentary is so effective because the documentary ends, and then it says one month later, Kurt Cobain died. We don't even need to show his death. But but the interesting part of the, the depression and the drug use is everyone thinks, um, you know, once you achieve your goals, once, once you find love, like that's when things get better. But the, the thing is, Kurt Cobain met Courtney Love. Kurt Cobain joined a band. Kurt Cobain's band made it big. He got to be on MTV. He, all his dreams came true, and yet the drug use still came. The depression still came. It's it's a very interesting topic to cover, which has been done in other movies, but that doesn't mean it can't be done again. Like Themes in movies are reused all the time, but it's very cool because it's actually a real story this time. But at least you're saying there there have there have been documentaries done about him, a montage of Heck and, and Kurt and Cordy and several other documentary feature documentaries about him. There's been really no feature documentaries about Prince. There's so much more to tell, so much more to learn about him that most people don't know about him. Whereas Kurt Cobain, I'm still not hearing anything that makes it sound interesting and something I want to see beyond like seeing the creation of the music. And that that you get Bohemian Rhapsody kind of thing, which is okay, here's this song, this song, this song. But I know you weren't leaning on that. You were leaning more on him growing up and stuff. Right. But again, I'm not finding anything original in there. And you're kind of trying to bash Prince for not having anything that's not been seen, but you're doing the same thing. Maybe there hasn't been any biopics about Prince for a reason, because maybe his past life wasn't all that interesting. Maybe a guy who just lived and loved and breathed music isn't that interesting to watch in a movie. It's, it's something to admire, don't get me wrong, but but for, for a 90-minute feature-length film, I, do, I don't think it's a very interesting story to tell. You've told me like one or two things that don't even seem like they would connect throughout the movie. Time. All right, perfect. So let's go into some closing arguments. We're going to start off with Brian on this one. Uh, one minute to wrap everything up. Prince's story is uh, both fascinating on a personal and professional level. It will make for an equally fascinating film. Um, it's a story that needs to be told in a visual medium. Um, the timing's never been better. Prince's death is recent enough that it uh, still resonates with people, but it's not so recent that it feels opportunistic to make this movie. Um, and in a modern of gender fluidity, in a modern era of gender fluidity, things like that, a prince is way ahead of its time. I mean, even changing his name for a time to a symbol of uh, mixed and male and female symbol. So I mean, it just seems like a great time to to do something about Prince. Um, he was writing a book memoir when he died and hoped it would cover everything up until the 2007 Super Bowl performance that Nick actually mentioned as being so great. And I agree. That performance is the perfect place to end this film. It's almost unanimously considered the greatest Super Bowl performance of all time. Uh, it's iconic in the pouring rain, no less, seen by 140 million people and culminated with a stadium full of 100,000 people singing along with this chilling rendition of Purple Rain in the rain. I mean, that just gives you goosebumps. Like you can just visualize this and that final shot just writes itself. All right, perfect. Uh, go now to Nick for your closing arguments to wrap up the question. 
it gives you goosebumps, but you could just go watch the performance. I'd much rather do that than wait 90 minutes of a filibustering of stuff that'll probably not be true. And after the movie comes out, everyone will be like, well, this didn't actually happen. Because the fact is not knowing about Prince's life does not mean it's going to be interesting. I've given you real things that have happened in Kurt Cobain's life, real interesting story, real interesting theme. That's the one thing I didn't hear. I didn't hear a theme about what Prince's biopic would be about. The fact is we just got Rocket Man. We just got Bohemian Rhapsody. It's going to start, it's starting to get repetitive. And the fact is, there's not a whole lot of specific details. There's that one incident with the kid that, I, like I said, would, would last a scene. It wouldn't connect to anything else in the movie. And if we're just watching a shot-by-shot -shot, uh, thing of Prince's life where half of it's made up because we don't know what it is, like, that doesn't sound interesting to me. What sounds interesting to me is learning a real adult lesson from a musician's life surrounding a mysterious death, a mysterious death that no one really knows a whole lot about, but that's not even gonna be the point of the movie. The point of the movie is figuring out who this guy was and how he tried to overcome the, th the demons inside him and he just couldn't, and those demons live in all of us. Time. All right, bring in Brian, and then we'll bring in uh, Felix and Oscar as they have requested. Uh, <laughs> got it wrong! That's Oscar, I'm clearly- I don't care. One of you is Felix and one of you is Oscar. Can I, I'm just gonna write down do I have Cody? Uh, we'll go to you first because your vote did not count last time. You're yeah. muted. You're muted, Cody. My favorite thing in the debate is to hear two people say, "I never want to watch that," or "I don't want to see that," or "I don't want to watch that." And the good thing you don't have to choose. It's us. Um, I think the overall story was better told by Nick. Because basically there was an argument said by uh, him that says Rocket Man, it's Bohemian Rhapsody. And he basically told us like Live Aid at the end. I, he didn't touch on it, but it was like it ends in the same way. And there was no counterpoint where it's not going to be Rocket Man or Bohemian Rhapsody. When Brian just kept hammering the points that I've already seen this in any biopics, but he didn't tell me how it's going to differentiate between the two that Nick showed. So Nick gets my point. Okay, uh, let's go to Bobo. Uh, I didn't write down Nick. I wrote down Tuig. Um, I think, <laughs> but no. I, I for me personally, I think Tuig just gave me more about what the movie would be about. Nick kind of hit on that. That Brian was more talking about the musical moments, but not really enough about the personal drama. So I, I do think Tuig argued better this time. Um, all right, so Tuig gets the first point. I actually disagreed with both of you. Uh, I went with Brian. Um, I felt like Tuig was trying to push through the wall. That Brian was making, as opposed to like stepping aside. I was waiting for Nick to go for go for a, a, a new angle because he was like, "Oh, well, it's going to be this. It's going to be like this and this and this." And it's like, "Well, no, it's actually going to be this and this and this." Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's not me. So yeah, let's go to uh, question number three. Uh, as I get rid of Felix and Oscar, whoever they want to be called, uh, fucking <laughs> Reagan and uh, George H W. Uh, for all I care. Uh, question number three in actors and actresses. Uh, what is the best performance of the 90s, the 1990s? Uh, to make sure, uh, we are starting off with Brian on this one. You have one minute. Uh, four is yours when you start talking. The 90s are packed with great performances by actors and actresses alike in leading and supporting roles, which is a great decade. And, but you look at the top of any list, a critics list, an Oscar list, uh, awards, websites, and there's one name you'll see over and over, and that's Denzel Washington, specifically in his portrayal of Malcolm X in the 1992 film. Um, Denzel's always been one of the most respected actors in Hollywood, and his role in Malcolm X is his masterpiece. He's not impersonating Malcolm X here. He is Malcolm X. As one critic stated, uh, Malcolm X contains one of the single greatest performances in movie history. It's the type of role that doesn't level the biopic playing field so much as define it. Uh, this role took uh, advantage of all of Denzel's talents. He plays the young, cocky, fun-loving characters as he does here when he plays Red Little. He plays anger better than most anyone, from quiet, seething anger to boisterous rage. And he gets to apply all of that to this role as well. And of course, he's a master at playing characters who are eloquent in their speeches and command attention, which is exactly what is needed to play Malcolm X. Denzel covers the full arc of the character here, from criminal to leader, from weak to strong, and he does every single stage of it with perfection. Time. All right. Sorry. Nope. Ending right off the dot as I take myself out, uh, and not Brian. Uh, Tuig, uh, you will now arrive up to the closing statements, uh, which you feel is the best performance of the 1990s. Guess who doesn't give a damn about critics and Oscars and all this stuff? Me, because those are all just people with opinions. You may share your opinion, Brian, but the, the fact is the greatest performance of the 1990s, well, well Denzel's is, is a very good one. 
Uh, it's Tim Robbins in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, probably not the pick everyone would think, but the fact is when you go back and watch this movie and you, and you really think about it, Tim Robbins is doing something pretty incredible here. Not only is he playing against type um, from what we've seen him in movies in the past, but he's creating a character from scratch who has such dynamics that we hate him at the beginning. How could he not have done it? Um, we sympathize with him by the end. He makes us feel hope. He makes us feel sad. He makes us feel angry. He makes us feel happy when, when, he, when he gives the beers to his friends on the roof. The fact is, he creates a character that is so interesting. It's made The Shawshank Redemption one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, following him through the movie, it's a movie about a guy who went to prison and shouldn't have gone to prison. That movie should be boring. But the fact is, it's Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, but it's Tim Robbins' performance that makes us latch onto this character and make us, makes us so interested in what's going to happen because of the different emotions he's, he displays throughout the movie. All right. Perfect. Bring back Eddie Ryan. Five minutes free form. I'm going to leave. Let's get it on. All right, you talk about how, how Robbins through these different scenes makes you feel this, makes you feel that, makes you feel that, but I don't think he did. I think this. I think Shawshank's a great movie. I think the story is great. Now, and Robbins did a great job, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's Robbins that made you feel these things. I think that it was a great story, it was a great script, the great moments were great, but I don't think that he was what did it. I mean, yes, he had to act it out, but it wasn't something he did that sold you on those moments. Whereas Denzel, the performance, that movie was all him. The whole thing rests on his shoulders and how he embodied that character. As Spike Lee even admits that a lot of the uh, acting he did in that movie was basically improvised because uh, he knew Malcolm X's uh, cadence and, and his rage so much that he was able to ad-lib half the scenes. Right. You want to know how he knew it so well? Because Malcolm X was a real person who he watched and studied and was able to study. I will always find it so much more interesting when a person can build a character from scratch as opposed to going back. It's impressive. I can't do it. I'm not saying it's easy but it's a lot less impressive to me when there is existing footage, when there are firsthand accounts of a person that someone can go and study. And it's, it seems a lot easier to become an existing person than to create a new one from scratch. Uh, you could say that I could say the story of Malcolm X is what is what makes that movie interesting. Spike Lee's direction is what makes that movie interesting. I think focusing on the performances, Tim Robbins is better by a mile to me because of all the different things you have to Going that movie is a roller coaster of emotions, and it's because we're following Tim Robbins' character throughout it, and he is the one who presents those emotions so well. You say it's, it's it's easier because he was a living person, but I mean, if you're trying to do an impersonation of someone, yes, that makes it easier. And obviously, he does a great impersonation of him, but he doesn't just do that. He embodies the whole character, and you don't look at him like somebody who's just doing impersonation. You like look at him and think, "This is Malcolm X." And but even even if you he wasn't a real character, if it's a fictional story, he still sells every moment of that film. He sells the whole character arc from this cocky kid who then gets in trouble, goes to prison, he lives in fear, then he gets freed, and he and he uh, it takes up this activism, and then becomes this commanding leader of people and Denzel sells every step of that. Robbins, again, I, I I think that while he did a good job, I think so much of that is is in the script and things like that. Uh, I would disagree. Like I just watching Denzel's speeches he gives, it might seem good, but then you sit back and you realize that every three words the audience is going woo and and, and hyping him on it, and the hype is coming from the audience, not from necessarily Denzel's performance. It's definitely helping. But, but the fact is, there are other things surrounding Denzel, just like there are other things surrounding Tim Robbins. So, so I don't think that's necessarily a knock against mine, because it would be just as much against yours. Also, we got to look at these two actors. You, you might disagree, but Denzel's performance, the speeches he gives, the, the, the tone in his voice, the, the attitude he shows, I saw the same thing in, in Two Guns. I saw the same thing in Remember the Titans. Like, it's very good. It's probably, it's probably his better, but it's very similar to what Denzel, who is awesome, but to what Denzel is used to doing. Tim Robbins, who is the comedic guy, the Howard the Duck guy, to come in and pull this off as such a cold, remorseless man in the beginning, but someone who becomes so relatable and redeemed by the end, it's it's not easy. Tim Robbins has done a lot of dramas besides this, and but I'm not saying he didn't, it, it wasn't good here, but the problem is just because Malcolm, just because Malcolm, just because Denzel has done other roles so well that might have the same similar, like I said, from everything from the cocky guy to the commanding presence, he's done those roles before, which is why he was so perfect for this role. Tim Robbins, he does drama fine, but really I thought it was a fairly one performance. I mean, in the beginning, he, he shows some fear, and then he spends the last two thirds of the movie just kind of a smirk on his face because he's one step, <clears throat> excuse me, one step ahead of everybody. And I, I don't think while while he played those scenes well, I don't think that he showed the kind of kind of growth and arc in a character so much as just I'm here and then I escaped. So so I don't <coughs> Uh, I talked about this in my last one. I don't think growth necessarily defines a good performance I, I, or a good character. <clears throat> 
You're wrong. He doesn't just smirk the rest of the movie. He gets thrown in the box, and you see a man at the, at the end of his wit that we have to believe that he's about to commit suicide. And and it's so much better when it when it's flipped and we realize, spoiler, that he actually escaped as opposed to committing suicide because he convinced us that that's the point that that character was at. He went. One more thing I have to jump on though is that you're you're talking about. How, uh, how you don't care about critics' lists, things like that, other people's opinions. Well, we're talking about the best performance of the 90s, and I'm looking at everybody. If you're looking at critics' lists, if you're looking at just people's lists, populists, then websites, whoever vote, wants people vote on, you'll find Mal you'll find Denzel Washington towards the top of that. Tim Robbins, honestly, not even the best performance in that film. There are better actors in that film. Tim Robbins is barely even talked about. If it was ones people voted on, um, Pitch Perfect would be the best movie if all my cousins voted for it. So like these things just don't matter to me. I, I get that it's like universally agreed, but that's not my list. So so I don't agree with that, and I don't think other people's opinions. But to just throw away the whole the whole idea of awards and Oscars. I mean, they're yeah. obviously people these are his peers. If you want to look at that, look at his peers saying yes, these are one of the best performances. In time. And no, he didn't win. But most Oscar voters admit that was a mistake because they gave Pacino basically a career award. But then they later said, let's do the same thing for Denzel because they knew that was a mistake. It's almost like the Oscars don't really mean a whole lot because they make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and time. Perfect. All right. Uh, let's go into some closing arguments. Uh, we are going to start <coughs> off with Tuig on this one. Uh, one minute to wrap everything up. Tim Robbins has to make you believe that he's a cold, remorseless man, but also one who can be redeemed by the end. One who you, ha you have to believe that he has the capacity to kill his wife, but one who you believe could also never do it. You have to believe he's one who just wants the happy, simple things in life. And most importantly, I got a tattooed on my body, man. He's got to make you hope. That is such a difficult thing to do in a performance. He has to show you that he's at the lowest of the low and that you can come back from that. And as long as you have hope, you can come through. And that, that's such a difficult thing to do with a character. Malcolm X, it's a great performance. It's very Denzel. It's very who Denzel is as a person. And it's a lot easier to do when you have such a, a playbook to follow because this person actually existed and this is what the person did. And yes, I know I've seen the, the, the interviews with Spike Lee where he says he went on past the speech, but the fact is he still had a, a rubric to follow. Tim Robbins had nothing. He built this character from scratch. He built him into one of the most likable characters starting at one of the most dislikable. So, so there is a lot of change in terms of how the audience feels, but he plays such a good character. Malcolm X is very good, but at the end of the day, Tim Robbins is just a whole lot better. Spike Lee helps Malcolm X. I apologize. There's try to count from 10 to 4, uh, skipping six members in the process. Uh, we'll go to Brian now for your closing arguments to wrap up the question. Malcolm X or Shawshank Redemption? You ask me which is that better film? I will agree. I'll say Shawshank Redemption. Absolutely. But we're looking for the best performance of the 90s. And Denzel acts circles around Tim Robbins. That entire film rested upon the shoulders of Denzel's performance, and he did not disappoint, bringing the full range of his acting skills to convincingly portray a man who has changed in many ways over the course of his life as he commands our attention with every single scene. Uh, Tim Robbins was good. Yes, he conveyed those emotions very well. But the problem is I don't think that any other actor of this time, any quality actor, could not have done that role just as well. The Malcolm X could only have been done by Denzel Washington. He took that role and he made it his own. And like I said, Tim Robbins wasn't even the best performance in that film. There are better actors in that movie. So how can he, if he's not even the best of the movie, then how can he be the best of the whole decade of films? Denzel's was a performance of the ages, still talked about to this day. Um, and it's one of the big, um, one of the biggest mistakes Academy Awards ever made, but no, you don't care about awards, but everyone agrees that it, it deserved it. And uh, it's a shining example of his talent. And you didn't even need to see Malcolm one through nine to understand 10, just saying. All right, uh, we'll bring back in Nick and then we will uh, bring in uh, Cookie Monster and Elmo uh, for their for their choices. Uh, I will, man, all right. Uh, we'll go to uh, Open this time. Uh, first, um, here we go. First, uh, who do you got? What? Uh, for me, Brian gave me a little more in the actual performance. It was close. I think Nick uh, kept it close, but I think uh, Brian just uh, did some really good offense on Robinson Shawshank for me. All right. Um, I actually, I'm going to go next, and I actually disagree with you, Bobin, uh, to give my point to Nick. Uh, there was a lot of things that canceled each other out. Um, I wasn't necessarily a fan of Nick's style, but uh, his points just came across a little more, and Brian didn't really attack those points as well, I thought. Uh, but, Cody, uh, you're breaking the tie. Uh, who gets the point? You're muted. You're muted. <laughs> 
pandering or not, um, I'm going Brian. Um, I think uh, I think Brian. They were both fighting like a battle. That, like passion alone, I would almost give it to Nick. But when it broke down to it, I think the last his rebuttal is was really strong on Brian's side, um, and he basically painted it out like he's not even the best in that movie. And tell me, like, and I understand there's back and forth, but I think Brian overall stole it. All right, perfect. Uh, we will now go on to question number four. As I get rid of uh, Telly and Sophie, um, we go to question number four to go off describing different Sesame Street characters. Uh, question number four, Star Trek. Uh, what Star Trek crew member would you want to shadow on duty? We're going to start off with Nick on this one. One minute. Uh, the floor is yours when you start talking. I'm just glad I won at least one up to now because I just really wanted to make this question. Uh, the clear Clear choice is Hikaru Sulu uh, of the USS Enterprise. Um, you, when you're shadowing someone, you not only want to learn the ins and outs of the job, but you also want a personal interaction, a personal connection, uh, if you will. Uh, Hikaru Sulu will by far be the best at that. And he's got the most interesting story. He's got the most interesting um, job. He drives the ship, man. How cool would it be to drive the USS Enterprise? That's a chance you get when you shadow Hikaru Sulu. How cool would it be for him to teach you a few fencing moves? The dude's an expert in fencing combat. Um, how cool would it be to just get to sit and talk to a dude who has to live with... He's got a family. He's got a family. He's got a daughter. Um, while on this, like insane trip that he's on the dude's just got such an interesting life that i think anyone would want to take the time sit and learn about i will talk a lot about um my opponent's choice after he gets to say who it is but the clear choices are Karusu. all right perfect i'll bring in uh brian for his portion of the closing or of the opening sorry uh what star trek crew member would you want to shadow on duty Okay, first of all, the keywords here on duty. Because if I could shadow anyone off duty, it would be Alice Eve's Carol Marcus. So I'd shadow her like all night long. But that's not the question. Um, so the crew member I've chosen is Data. Uh, shadowing Data would be interesting. It'd be educational. It'd be entertaining. Uh, with Data performing a number of various duties in the Enterprise, you'd never get bored. Uh, sometimes you get to home the ship. So you get to try your driving. Sometimes you're working with engineering. Sometimes the security. And much of the time is spent with him acting as science officer on the ship. So when it's in a sci-fi world of aliens and scientific unknowns, that by itself would be a fascinating job to watch and learn. As second officer, he's third in command behind only Picard and Riker. So you're off, he's often left in command in charge of the Enterprise. So uh, you get to experience a taste of command as well. Um, so if you want a full round experience of all that Star Trek experience has to offer, Data's the one to follow. Because yes, you're going to get that personal connection because you can talk to him the whole time. Yes, you're going to get to try all these different jobs out uh, and, and, and all these things. But you're also going to learn. At the same time, you also get to teach him. All right, cool. Uh, we talked a minute and seven already, so. I'm just... All right, cool. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's, uh, yeah, let's get um, into some free form. Um, yeah. Okay, you get to teach him, or you get to be annoyed the BS out of of him trying to get you to teach him how to be a human while his emotion chip malfunctions the whole time. Look, Hikaru Sula does all the other jobs too. When, when Kirk's not there, he takes over as captain. But the fact is Data's main job is the same as Chekhov's. It's not that interesting. Um, you, you it's, not, it's not the same as Chekhov's. He's he's the second officer. He he it works closely with engineering. He's often doing things there. He's the acting science officer. So he's doing a lot of the investigation and a lot of things learning, trying to understand things that are happening. Sulu, you are sitting there. You're, when you go in a car, you want to watch somebody drive a car. How fun is that? Like, yeah, you're in a ship. After about five minutes, that's going to get boring watching him drive. Oh, sometimes he gets moved to the captain's chair. You get to watch him sit there. You're not doing anything. With data, you're going to have so many different things to do. You're talking to him. If you've never driven a car before, watching someone drive a car is the coolest thing ever, and learning how to do it is the, is the coolest thing. You get to talk about his academy days. You get to talk about him and his family. You get to talk about him and his adventures. Fence, learning how to fence. Like, yeah, yes, you're not shouting them off duty, but those are things that could happen while he's on duty. With Data, you learn nothing. You just sit here, and, and he bothers you trying to get you to teach him how to be a human because he doesn't know how to do that. You might as well just be sitting on a computer all day. No, it's quite the opposite. You get to be there and learn alongside of him because he knows more than anyone else in the ship. He can teach you about what he's doing, but you can also ask him any question you want. You can, what, what, during your duty, you can ask him and learn about any subject at all. He's like your own personal, you know, Google Siri, Alexa, whatever. 
Um, cool. whereas, whereas with Sulu, I mean, yeah, you can talk about his family, you can talk about his, uh, his his fencing, things like that. But Data has all kinds of experiences like that and far more. And it's not like you can go go fencing with Sulu because that's all off-duty stuff. It's like you can see his daughter and his family. That's off-duty stuff. We're talking about on-duty. He, he fences on-duty um, in Star Trek 09. Uh, and the fact is, Sulu teaches you how to be a leader. And guess what? Sulu has a computer too. So if you wanted to learn all that stuff that Data can supposedly tell you, it's on the computer that every Enterprise crew member has. On the computer that he's he's sitting there, that he has to sit there and used to steer the ship. He's not able to just look things up for you. Data, while he's doing everything else, he can just be telling you everything you need to know. He's not sitting there Googling things for you. Sure. He, anyone ship could do that because it's a ship and we're in the future and the supercomputer on the Enterprise knows everything. Data is literally... the. The whole thing about Data is he is a robot. They don't need a robot. They showed you in, in um, the earlier Star Trek in the USS Enterprise why you don't need a robot, but they thought it would be an interesting experiment to try and get Data, a robot, to become more human. But the, the problem with Sulu is you have not told me anything about him that you could not get from every other crew member. You're saying he's driving the ship. Plenty of people have driven the ship. You're saying he's taking over the command chair. Plenty of people, including Data, have taken over the command chair. But Sulu, other than that, you haven't told me anything that he has that no one else in the ship has. Data is so unique. He's going to be able to tell you anything, to teach you anything, and learn from you at the same time. He's, he's, yeah. he's on a quest of constant learning, yes, but he's not going to force you to teach him things. You're talking about the emotion chip. He can turn off the emotion chip. It was just in one movie where it was malfunctioning. Um, at the same time, though, he does want to learn from you. So if you want, you can help teach him and experience being the teacher as well as being the learner. Not just You don't have to just be an observer. You get to feel like you're a part of it and not that's, just be passive. That's not what you want when you're shadowing someone. You don't want to be the teacher. You want to learn. You don't go there to teach. You go there to learn new things. And the, here's what Sulu has that the other members don't. A life. He has a life. He can tell you. Just imagine that scene from Star Trek 04, where he, or Star Trek 4, where he goes and sees the helicopter, and he's all, he's like, "Oh, Huey 204 from my Academy days. I love about your Academy days, dude. Like that sounds awesome." He's a leader. Imagine, imagine that time when he when he takes Captain Share for the first time in Star Trek in the Darkness, and Bones goes, "Shit, remind me not to mess with you." He teaches you how to be a firm leader. He teaches you how to. Do the coolest thing on the ship, which is to try. Your, idea, your idea of why Sulu is fun is because it'd be fun to talk to about his past, about his family, about these things. Yeah, he's so fun to go out and have a beer with. We're talking about what you want to learn on duty. We're not talking about that kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, with data, you can learn all about the ship, as well as you can use him as your own Rosetta Stone. You can learn new languages the whole time if you want. You can Hell, you can tell him to play your, you know, whatever playlist and make him your own personal music player. You can do whatever you want with this guy. But the point is, you're actually learning from him the whole time and not just talking to him about his, his days back at the academy, which you can do with a beer and that's great that's great on off duty but you know you're not if you said yourself you want to shadow somebody you don't want to hear about their off duty you want to be learning the job no you want to hear about their life you want to make a personal connection anything data can teach you you can learn from a computer guess what all the engineering stuff all that that's not the most exciting thing people don't look at that and go oh i want to be an engineer this is the warp core okay you yeah, acting like data has never had any experiences he has so many experiences and so much more that he can tell us about all kinds of different stuff that he's experienced. Human or not, he has had a personal experience and he can share those with you as well. So he's, that points moot. He spends the entire four movies making people try to make him a person. All right, we'll go into the closing arguments. We're going to start off with Brian on this one. Uh, one minute to wrap everything up. What it all comes down to is what does someone really want out of the Star Trek experience? Anytime someone dreams of being a part of Star Trek, they think about doing the kinds of things that data does, scientific learning and exploration, and even occasional action. What they aren't dreaming of is sitting in a chair driving a ship, essentially pressing the buttons the captain tells you to push. And even when he acts as captain, Sulu really didn't do much besides sit in a different chair. By shadowing data, you get the full experience. You get your time on the bridge. Uh, yes, you get to experience almost every aspect of Starfleet, not the least of which is the scientific exploration, which is really what Star Trek is all about. Shadowing data also lets you be more of a participant instead of strictly an observer. Uh, you get to teach as well as learn, and you get to feel like you're a part of this instead of just following someone around. Every day you help him understand and become more human while he can teach you everything else. Sulu, nice guy, solid crew member but I can't imagine staying interested watching him perform his duties. Uh, when you're traveling, do you want to watch the driver or do you want to watch the world outside the car windows? Stick with data. You get to explore and experience that life outside the car. All right, perfect. All right, and now we go to uh, Nick to finish the question. Okay. <clears throat> 
I strongly disagree. Data is not the life outside the car. The fact is data has been around a shorter amount of time than Sulu. What you want when you join a new job is you want someone who's been there, who's seen it all. The fact is Sulu's gone through the academy. He's gotten trained in fencing. He's done all these cool things. He's even had time to have a family. When you're shadowing someone, you want to learn the job. You want to do the coolest job on the ship, which is to drive the ship. That is what everyone wants. No one wants to join a boat and, and be the deckhand. Everyone wants to drive the ship. That's the coolest part. Data, there's nothing you can learn from data that you can't get from Googling. I'm sorry, that's not interesting. The only the only extra, because it would be cool to, to shadow anyone on the bridge of the enterprise. The fact is the only extra thing data can give you is trying to get you to teach him how to be a human. That's not why you sign up. That's not what you signed up for. Data's not been around as long. All he can do is spit facts out at you, which is the same thing a computer is. You want a personal touch. You want interesting parts of the job you follow Sulu. You want, you want to learn how to be a great leader and go from the academy to captain of the USS Excelsior. Sulu's the guy who's going to teach you how to do it while creating a personal connection. All right. I will bring in Brian, and then I will bring in uh, Mario and Luigi uh, as I uh, – Say we get every get all our votes in. Um, went first last time. Cody did no. Cody did. Uh, so Cody will go first on this one. Okay. Right. So I thought something was really funny that was said is like basically Brian said, "Hey, I want you to." Uh, you just want to hang out with this guy outside of work. You don't really want to do anything work. And then he says, uh, you can turn data into a music player all day long. So I thought that was a very interesting side While note. You, I know, I know. But it was like, you can just make him a music player. Which, okay, that's not shadowy. Um, but my thing is just overall, like Nick took it. His knowledge of Star Trek just like overran with everything that he was able to list off. Because like all the stuff that Sulu was able to do and driving the ship and blah, blah, blah. I still don't know because I've watched Star Trek. I don't remember seeing Google anywhere, but apparently there's Google on the ship. But I had to strike that because I don't remember seeing it. Um, all right, I'll go next. And I disagree with Cody. I have to stay, stay on brand. Uh, and for me, it came down to essentially hearing all these stories of the good old days versus like a hands-on experience. And I was sold on a hands-on experience. Uh, so Brian gets my point. Uh, Boltman. You're breaking the tie. Uh, do we go to uh, a tiebreaker speed round, or do we have a winner? Uh, for me, Tug uh, brought it home with uh, the line about there's nothing that data can give you uh, outside of you teaching him. I think that was the, the line that kind of gave to him. All right. Well, that means that we are tied up two to two, which means that we go to the tiebreaker speed round question. How it is going to work is I am going to say the question not once, but twice. After I say it twice, uh, you will submit your answers. Whoever we hear first will go first. Uh, and then person who goes second, eight second will go second. Uh, 45 second opening followed by 30 second rebuttal. Cody, that sounds, that sounds right. Yeah, but you literally said the person that goes second will go second. Well, I'm hoping. Because <laughs> oh, that would yeah. just be weird I if just they did. I want to make sure. All right, guys. Uh, it is now time for your speed question. Uh, listen carefully. Uh, as I say, it not once, but twice. Uh, it is in the category of Oscars, uh, and it is as follows. What is the worst 2010s movie that was nominated for Best Picture? Once again, what is the worst movie from the 2010s that is not that was nominated for a best picture? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my gut, not look up the rest. So, do I say the answer or do I just say my name? Yeah, you say your answer. The answer is Boyhood. I'm going to go with. Gravity. All righty. Uh, so this we have Boyhood versus Gravity. Um, I will get rid of Waluigi and Wario. Um, and we heard Tuig first. Uh, we, you got you got 45 seconds. Uh, time is yours when you start talking. Is there, before you go, Brooklyn, is there... Oh. Yeah. Is there rules on like what I can and can't say? I don't remember. Like, can I not attack his first or something like that? No, you can say whatever you want. It's okay. your turn to just completely just okay. he has a chance to defend or not. It's just whatever you guys want to do. Gotcha. All right. So yeah, uh, floor is yours. What do you think?
The worst movie to be nominated for Best Picture is Boyhood because it's literally a gimmick. The movie, the whole movie is a gimmick and it's filled with um, some good acting, but mostly bad acting following the main characters. Patricia Arquette's great, Ethan Hawke's fine. But the fact is it's a boring story and the whole movie is sold on a gimmick. We took a whole lot of time to film this movie and look, the, the, the kid is actually growing up through it. It's really not that interesting when you sit back and think about it. No one wants to see uh, anything more from it. Uh, Gravity is actually a really cool movie. It's a really cool twist on the concept of Castaway following a really good actress in Sandra Bullock. It's a really unique sci-fi uh, movie. It's really cool. It's got really cool visuals. It's got really cool sound. The fact is there's a lot more substance to Gravity, even with the sole performance, as opposed to the gimmick that is Boyhood. We don't really care about Eller or whatever his name is, because by the end of the movie, he's a terrible actor, and we don't like watching it. Todd. All right. Go now to Brian uh, for your opening arguments. 45 seconds on the clock. So Gravity was a great technical achievement. I thought about what they did with that movie technically and how they made it look and, and the isolation of space was done very well. But I don't think there's a whole lot of story there. It's just somebody sitting around in space. It wasn't even as good as Castaway because Castaway, at least he had things to interact with and things to happen. With that, all you had was uh, basically this essential dream of George Clooney showing up. Boyhood, yes, it was a gimmick, but it was a gimmick used to tell a story. It was a, it was a gimmick that was was used to frame this thing so you could show this, this person growing up. You show the advance of the character, his whole family life, everything works so well. And there is a story there to tell. With Gravity, the entire story is like, hey, I'm lost in space. I'm trying to make it back. I don't think there's enough story there. What, what Was the acting good? I thought it was okay. Technically, it was awesome. But do I think that it was a story worthy of the best picture Oscar? Absolutely not. All right, perfect. Going to rebuttals now. Uh, starting off with two acre, 30 seconds. Uh, floor is yours. First of all, the dream sequence of George Clooney is awesome. We get to see the insanity of a situation we can't possibly imagine of being stuck in space. She does so many other things. She almost dies several times because she has to visit other space stations to keep herself alive. And when she almost loses hope, she gets it back and she makes it back to Earth. It's a really inspiring, awesome story. The fact is, Boyhood is boring. It's a gimmick. You say it tells a story. Other Coltrane doesn't change at all. All he does is grow up. It's literally just watching a kid go from being a kid to actually growing up. No one likes watching it. It's just a story of a family being divorced. There's, there's other better movies that do that. The story behind it is so much worse than the gimmick that it presents itself as. Gravity's awesome. All right, and now we go to Brian to finish the Gravity was so boring, they had to add that dream sequence just to make it something exciting because nothing else was happening in this movie. It's just her drifting around in space trying to get back. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that's that got a little bit of drama to it. But really, after a while, it does not sustain an entire two-hour whatever movie and it becomes very boring. Boyhood, you you got to see a story of a family. And, and yes, it's something you, you saw before, but it still is, is a great story with good acting, well, well awarded, um, but at least it had a reason to be nominated for Best Picture. Gravity has no story there to tell. And like I said, it was just so boring they had to add the dream sequence technically it's great all right uh so that is the game we now go to the judges i'm now going to bring in yoshi and birdo uh for their choices uh give me a second to write down my answer uh, i really enjoyed that gimmick throughout this thank you. <laughs> mom where do we keep the bleach <laughs> Yikes. oh my gosh i don't know who to it's I'd have to break a tie, right? Because <laughs> I'd go last. Oh, oh. oh. All right. I, I am ready whenever you guys are. And I'll go first. I'm not ready. Um, I can do a famous Nika thing. Can you give me like 10 more seconds from each person? Um, well, if you sprawl out on the couch in this weird sexy pose. <laughs> uh, oh, that could have swayed my. Hi, I'm Brooklyn Bit. I lost forty pounds with that image alone. <laughs> oh fuck! Forty pounds of what? Oh, I have one more thing to add to my argument. <laughs> Penis leeches. No, it was so fun. <laughs> and your winner. Yep. That's going to be, it is what it is. It's the, one of the closest fights I've ever judged on. All right. 
So we now go to the judges for their decision. Uh, I'm going to go first, uh, and I am awarding my point to Nick. Uh, Nick kind of took control of the fight right from the get-go uh, in terms of, like, where Brian had to adapt his his, his opening to just hit everything that Nick tackled. Um, really efficient use uh, in the speed round to get out as many points as possible. Uh, but I'm the only judge here. Uh, we'll go to Boatman next. Uh, who does your point go to and why? Uh, the point and the win goes to Tuig. Uh, for me, Tuig just attacked on, uh, well, not really attacked, but defended gravity better than I think uh, Brian defended boyhood. I think Nick gave me more of stuff that actually happened in the movie, or Brian just kind of touched on the acting, so I'm giving the point to Tuig. All right. Well, that means that your winner uh, facing, uh, facing Tim for the championship uh, as you see, Cody also had Nick. Uh, Cody, anything else to add before we go to post-match? I, I think it was really close. I just think the rebuttals, like, I think Brian got slipped up in the rebuttal, and if his rebuttal was as strong as his opening, I think he could have took it. It was just, it was just super close. Um, I can't wait to see Brian. I have an opponent that I want to see Brian play later, but, like, this is this is a really good number one contender match. All right, let's go to the post-match interviews. We're going to start off with uh, our winner, Nick Tuig. Uh, Nick, congratulations. You are now you. facing your fandom uh, partner uh, in the face. Uh, I I can't imagine that you were ex- excited. Uh, I'm sure you and Tim talk a lot, similar to how Cody and I used to talk back in the day about the base. Uh, how does it feel to, to go up against essentially your sparring partner? It's, uh, it's going to be rough, man. Uh, Tim's so good at this. Brian's so good at this, and, and I'll talk. I'll answer your question first, and then I'll talk to Brian, uh, about Brian. But uh, t- Tim's so good at this, and uh, Tim's a very passionate human being, as I'm sure anyone who watches uh, his anything can, can tell. <laughs> so you know, I, I, I'm sure the barbs will all be kept above the belt, and at the end, you know, we'll probably have to find new teammates. But it's it's fine. It'll be great. Can't wait. <laughs> um, uh, probably, so, yeah, go, ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, as far as the fight today. Um, Brian's so good. Uh, he, here, here's the rub of it. He picked, I've maybe seen like 10%, 20% of the movies nominated for Best Picture in the 2010s, and he just happened to pick one I knew. If he had picked any other one I didn't, I would have been like, yeah, well, th- this guy's bad in it, and the story's good, and I was like, So I just, I got really lucky at the end there. Uh, Brian definitely is one of the most intelligent people in this community. That's why he's so good uh, in trivia and in debate. Um, so I, I would like to know who Cody wants him to play because that's that's a thing I want to watch. I think that was Brian. I think he, what, he had a thing for Brian uh, that he wanted you to play. But the one the one final question that I have for you, uh, going into question four, you were down to one. Uh, how did you feel going into question four, knowing that it was a category that you picked in Star Trek? G- good, because as passionate as Brian is about pirates, that's that's me with Star Trek. So I knew I picked Brian's favorite scene in Pirates, and I was like, this. Is- He's still going to beat me on this. Um, so going into track, I was happy. I was really just nervous that I wasn't going to win the, the biopic one because I was w- once you listed out the order that they were in, I was like, well, crap, we might not even get to start the track. Uh, so going into four, I was really uh, confident going into the speed round, a little less so. Um, but, yeah, no, Brian, Brian is so good. And I All like right. to win again. Congratulations on your win, good sir. Uh, best luck to you in the championship. Uh, as we now go over to Brian. Brian, I gotta commend you. You were probably one of the more one of the most calm uh, debaters that I have seen seen in in this league. Uh, in terms of your opening and closing, you present your arguments well. You present them professionally. Uh, how did it feel? Um, obviously, with a tiebreaker, he answers with boyhood. Um, what led you to go to gravity? Well. Uh... Boyhood was the right answer. <laughs> I, I took too long to say it. My, my, my problem with Boyhood is I've only ever seen it once. Didn't like it, never watched it again, barely remember it, as you can probably tell from me trying to rebut it. Um, but uh, yeah, because it was a complete gimmick and it shouldn't have been nominated. Um, so, I mean, I had to pick another one. That's actually Gravity kind of my second choice because it was kind of the same thing where, you know, it had a gimmick, a little bit of a gimmick of the, the technical achievements of it, but I didn't think there was much to the story of it. But I knew all along that I'm not good with speedruns. Give me time to prep. I can make a quick debate. I knew up front I'm not very good at speedrun. something I'm going to need to improve on if I'm going to keep debating. Uh, yeah, definitely uh, trial and error for sure. 
Uh, unfortunately, we we got to have a lot of, got to have a lot of practice. Uh, not not the same, uh, but great performance uh, nonetheless. Obviously, came down to the last question, uh, and I'm sure Cody has a plethora of people for you for you to take on. As I'm sure you'll get another uh, road to the title. Uh, so thank you once again, Brian. Uh, we're now going to bring in uh, Diddy Kong and Donkey Kong for their final thoughts. Uh, Boatman, uh, how do you feel about the match? I want to kill you. The match really, really good, really, really close. That gimmick got real old real fast, and a lot of times you didn't attribute the correct character to the personality of that NXT and Cody. That's not important. What is important is that I think Brian and Nick are like two of the best debaters, and this was really close. Uh, if you look at like the main round of debate, they both won on the category they picked, so they picked the right categories for them. Ultimately, everything came down to that speed round question, and at the end of the day, I think while picks aren't the only thing, they're incredibly important, and ultimately, Tuig picked what they both agreed was the better answer. All right, uh, and Cody, uh, anything else to add? Yeah, so I am not in charge of scheduling by any means, so me saying who we want to play uh, does not mean anything at this point. Um, but I would love to see Brian play two people. I would love to see him play Nico, which is surprising because Nico is actually not that bad of a debater nowadays. Um, and then Kirk Kolakowski. I think him and Kirk would have an actually really good debate um, because they they cross over a lot on similar things, so I think it would be fun. Um, but, yeah, this was overall a great fight. Uh, Brian is me as a debater. Uh, if you give us prep time, we are, we are good. You give us speed rounds. Oh boy. We can, we falter. And that's what sucks. Like, and it's the one thing that's why I try to end it before I ever have to answer a, a 45 second question. Um, so no, I think two versus Tim again, I bet the community's tired of seeing these two square off, but at the end of the day, it's going to happen again. So I'm, uh, I think Brian will be back and I think Brian will, the knowledge he has, he'll be back in a number one contenders match before too long. I guarantee. All right. Well, uh, I do want to thank everybody for coming on today. Brian and Nick. Nick, again, once again, taking on Tim Bracala in the next match for the championship for Too Big, Brian, Cody, Bowman, I, uh, and Brooklyn filling in for Tim, Tim Bracala. Uh, be sure to check out the plethora of content on Multiplex, not only on the YouTube channel, but on the Entertainment Podcast Network, on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, where you can find your audio uh, content. Cheers, guys. And as always, drive unsafe, wreck your car, do not care. Drive safely.